Hi everyone, we're here with Dr. Russell Moore, who's president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, he's written a lot of books, a lot of which I actually have right here. Uh, he's written Onward, The Storm-Tossed Family, Tempted and Tried, uh, Adopted for Life, The Kingdom of Christ, and now he's written uh, The Courage to Stand, his newest book, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. Dr. Moore, do you want to introduce yourself maybe and add to that? Well, thanks so much for having me. I uh, so live much. in Nashville, Tennessee with my wife and five sons. That's awesome. Um, so do you just want, what do you, so exactly what does the ERLC do and uh, what, what do you do as president there? We basically do two things. Uh, one of those things is to equip Christians and, and churches to, to know how to follow Christ with ethical and moral decisions. So everything from uh, how do I act with integrity in my workplace uh, to how do I relate within family systems? Um, how do I care for uh, the orphan and the widow as the Bible commands us to do? What do I do about um, end of life decisions and human cloning and artificial intelligence and all those sorts of, of questions? And then the second thing is to speak out from the churches to uh, the rest of the world with a Christian perspective. So we work with uh, culture, with government, with um, tech industry a lot uh, recently, with foreign governments on persecuted church issues and so forth. So those are basically the two, the two categories. That's really cool. And um, I mean, I know you could probably, uh, we could probably do a whole interview about your job and Nicholas told me a lot about it. And <laughs> I know, it, I know it's really cool, but I wanted to ask you a few questions about your book, actually, mm -hmm. um, starting with uh, why Elijah is so helpful for us understanding courage. And, you know, people may have heard a little bit about this story, but could you maybe tell us a little bit um, on why First and Second Kings is so important to understanding the story of the Bible and the story of our own lives? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, one of those reasons is because um, Elijah doesn't take up a lot of real estate in the Bible. He's just there in First and Second Kings. But... He's all over the Bible in terms of echoes. And so if you, you move on into the prophets and they're saying Elijah will come back uh, before the great and, and awesome day of the Lord. Um, and then uh, when Jesus comes, he says the spirit of Elijah has come back in John the Baptist. And so he's all over uh, the Bible. But the other reason is because uh, I wrote the book because I misunderstood Elijah and I think it, it helped me to see how I was misunderstanding other people and misunderstanding myself. So when I thought about Elijah, even though I, I knew the Elijah story really well, I've always thought of the, the sort of hinge point. If you think about a, a movie and you say, what's the real turning point uh, in this movie for whatever the character is? For Elijah, with me, it was Mount Carmel. Uh, where he goes up and he's having um, he's having a contest with the prophets of Baal and says, call to your God and I'll call to my God and we'll see who answers. And Baal doesn't say anything, but God answers with fire. So Elijah's really triumphant uh, in that moment. But the more time that I spent in the Elijah story, the more I realized that's not really where the hinge point is. It's what happens right after that. And Elijah is on the run, uh, afraid. Uh, out in the uh, out in the wilderness, lonely, uh, despairing, 
doesn't see a real future for himself or for, uh, or for the gospel. Uh, and the way that God deals with him in that moment is actually what's shaping and forming courage. And so I think a lot of times when we think of courage, what we think of is sort of um, bravado. And so, you know, kind of image maintenance, but actually that's fear. And uh, that, that, that's just another way of expressing fear. And that's not what, what gospel courage is. Yeah, thank you so much. And I think a little bit about that kind of uh, follows up with, uh, in your book, you said a call to courage is a call to be crucified. Uh, do you mm-hmm. want to elaborate a little bit on that and how that reshapes the, the idea of how we um, embody courage? Yeah, I think that a lot of people assume that, and sometimes they don't even really think this uh, you know, out loud. It's just um, kind of below the surface. And they wouldn't even really know how to put words to it. But they assume when things are going well for me, it's because God's happy with me. And when I'm facing whatever it is that I'm afraid of, it's because God has left me. But that's not actually how it works. Uh, As a matter of fact, if you look at the places in your own life, and, and certainly any figure in scripture, where God is the most um present, palpably present in your life, it's usually not going to be in those moments of triumph. It's going to be in those moments where you're dependent and where you, you feel like everything is falling apart for you. Uh, that's where you, that, those are going to be those hinge moments where God's doing something uh, in your life, preparing you for the next thing. And I think sometimes we just don't, we don't see that and we assume that what it means to, as Jesus says, carry the cross and follow him, that that means that something's gone wrong, when in reality, it usually means uh, that things are going right. And, and that's what the normal life is for the follower of Jesus. That's awesome. I remember in the opening pages of your book, uh, reading about how you began to think in your early years and your teen years, how Christianity might be a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And, then you, and then you said... If Christianity were just a means to an end, if Jesus were just a hood ornament on top of Southern honor culture, then that means that what held everything in the cosmos together was not the Sermon on the Mount, but the survival of the fittest. Yeah. So in your, when you were uh, growing up and in high school and stuff, how did the, this idea of Christianity as a means to an end like affect uh, your development and uh, what you called a spiritual crisis? Well, I started to see a, a lot of different things. I mean, uh, one of those things being uh, the persistent racism uh, in Bible Belt uh, America, which uh, did not seem and does not seem to me to uh, line up with, uh, with Scripture anywhere from Genesis to Revelation. Um, and then also a, a lot of what we have seen in recent years, but I was seeing it um, maybe at a, at a more covered up level, but uh, sexual abuse, violence, uh, all of those things within the church that are covered up. Uh, you could see that if you knew where to, to look for it. Um, and a kind of, of violence that was there. And then, uh, and then the sort of political um, identity uh, of the church, cultural and political identity, rather than a than a gospel identity. And I started to just say, well, maybe that's what it's really about. Maybe this really is just a way to 
um, either for people to be culturally to fit in uh, or to uh, be mobilized for political stuff or, or to sell stuff to people. And so that's what was really scary to me is when I'm seeing that and there wasn't, um, there wasn't an answer uh, coming, coming back from that it was just, these are the sorts of questions you ought not to be asking. And that's even more, uh, that's even more terrifying. And so thankfully for me, uh, I had read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, over and over and over again as a kid. And so I recognized the name C.S. Lewis on the spine of, uh, of a book in a bookstore and took it home. And it was mere Christianity, which God used to help pull me out of that crisis, not because of Lewis's arguments. Um, I didn't need arguments. I mean, those are good arguments, but my problem wasn't cognitive. Um, instead, what helped me is Lewis, uh, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, he will do things like sort of um, have an aside where he just sort of stops his narration and says something to the reader like, um, you know, you, you really shouldn't ever go inside of a, a wardrobe by yourself uh, and, and, and shut the door. You know, those sorts of things that, that's kind of, uh, he's talking to you. And that same sort of uh, tone I found in Mere Christianity. So this was somebody who wasn't um, trying to sell me something. He wasn't, you know, doing any of that. He was just bearing witness to what he knew to be true. And that's what I needed. So you talk about bearing witness to what, uh, to what is true. So in the book, you actually talk a lot about integrity. And there's a whole chapter on that. And that was one of my favorite chapters, actually. But how do you, and you talk about it as being a coherent whole. So how do you think that in our own lives and in the church, you know, in, you, you see pastors or leaders end up in investigations with reports and things of that sort. Yeah. So how do you think we avoid other people on the outside of the church seeing the faith as a means to an end? Well, I don't think the issue is, is uh, trying to keep people on the outside from seeing it. I, I think it is from making sure it's not the case. Right. And, I, and I think that, that actually that's the way that we've often done it, is to say we want to give an appearance of integrity, uh, regardless of whether or not there is any integrity there. Uh, that's one of the reasons why if you look at a really sort of a predatory religious system, and there are a lot of them uh, out there, usually if you go behind closed doors and you say, uh, why are you covering things up this way what they're going to say is well we don't want to uh we, we don't want to alarm people we don't want to give people reason to uh walk away from from jesus and that sounds like it's really other directed when it's really self-protecting and it ends up actually uh actually besmirching the name of jesus because he he doesn't need cover up uh he, he needs instead uh, actual integrity. And uh, that, that, that's what I think the, the step is, is to have an actual integrity. And that means, I think, to start in the life of a person as early as is possible. Now, you know, until you're dead, it's not too late for you uh, to start uh, putting your life together. But it's better if you start as early as you can to say, I'm going to be a whole person and not just fragments of, um, of a person. 
And, and you know, it's really easy. It's always been easy to do this since the fall, but it, it's, it's easy in a different way now to sort of have this part of you that you present and everything else is kind of hidden in darkness and is then ignored. And that's one of the reasons why uh, people kind of fall apart later on in life is because they're, they're not actually held together by something that's coherent. All that they're doing is sort of putting these different pieces of, of their life together in search of their appetites or their ambition or their image or, or whatever. And it just doesn't hold. So do you think social media and the digital age have made it harder to have moral integrity? Uh, I think, I wouldn't say it's made it harder to have moral integrity because that would uh, that would assume that there are other times in world history where it's been easier to have integrity. And I, I don't think that's the case. But I do think it's a different uh, kind of, of temptation. And what social media is able to do is sort of to weaponize uh, all of the different ways that fear can come against uh, integrity. So you might have one person who the problem is a fear of people and what other people think about him or her. And social media can heighten that because they're constantly looking to say, what do people think of me? Um, Those sorts of things. Or you can have the kind of person who really wants to belong and wants to be part of uh, the, the herd, whatever herd is around. And they're able to look and I mean, I think of, um, I think of, uh, I had a parent who has a, a teenage uh, young woman who said her problem is not that she's being bullied on social media. Her problem is that she's able to pull up social media and see all of these get togethers and parties and all that, that she's not invited to. And even if she didn't want to go to them, the fact that she wasn't invited, well, that's always gone on, but now she's able to sort of never be free from checking that out if that's her temptation or the sort of person who's given to being quarrelsome. And um, as, as the scripture says, an unhealthy craving for controversy. Well, social media can amplify that. So it, it, it really is just able to, uh, it's not that it's a different drug than we've ever had. It's just that it is a brutally efficient delivery system to get right into the veins of whatever your particular vulnerability is. Yeah, for for sure. I think that was a really good analysis there. Definitely like very wise. (laughs) I could have have answered there, but um, you talk a little bit about in the book uh, about uh, how we need a deeper sense uh, to the judgment seat of Christ instead of paying attention to the little judgment seats around us. Um, so why do you think people um, object to Christianity, not because of ideas we hold too tightly, but instead uh, we, we don't hold on to enough? Well, I think that if you ask people, what do you, you, you just talk to people who are not Christians and who have a, a, bad, a bad sort of impression of Christianity. And you say, why? Uh, you know, one of the first things that's going to come up is they're going to say, well, Christianity is too judgmental. Um, and uh, Christians are judging. And, and of course, we know exactly what they're talking about because we've all encountered that 
uh, even those of us who are Christians, we've all encountered that within the church. But if you talk to them long enough, what you find out is the problem isn't really that they're judgmental in the way that they're using it. It's that they're inconsistently judgmental. Uh, and, and they're not judgmental on the basis of the things that, that they say that they believe. So it's not that the problem with most unbelievers is not that Christians have a way of differentiating this is right and this is wrong and this is good and this is bad. Everybody does. Um, the, the, the problem is that they say uh, Christians are inconsistent with the way that they do it. So it's your sins are awful, mine are okay. Yours are going to be called to judgment, mine are going to be hidden. That, that's the problem that most of them are actually talking about. And I think for a lot of Christians, the problem is if we don't really understand what judgment is, and there are a lot of Christians who are scared of judgment because they think, uh, oh, it's just, it's just awful to be exposed and to be, you know, they can imagine after death being brought before the judgment seat of Christ like a trial with all of the evidence against them and they're humiliated by, well, that's not what the judgment seat of Christ is for somebody who's in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have an advocate with the Father. So you have already been crucified with Christ and you're, you're standing in Christ. So his life is your life. And so it's not something to be terrified of. And what that means is then you don't have to uh, undergo all of those little uh, judgment seats, um, it, it, whether that's what other people think of you uh, or uh, sometimes what you think of yourself. I mean, I, I was talking to this older, wiser man one time about um, a situation where I was just, I couldn't let go of a, you know, a, a decision that I had made a long time ago that I didn't think was right. And I just kept replaying it over and over. I wish I had done something else in this. And he said, I think your problem is pride because you really can't imagine that you could do something that stupid. And you can. And so what now? And I think there are a lot of Christians who, even with a sort of moral, not just decision things, but sort of moral um, uh, sins that they've committed, they look back and, and they want to just sort of replay that constantly rather than saying, well, yes, I did that and I'm a sinner and I've confessed that sin and uh, the blood of Christ has, has cleansed me of that sin, and therefore I move forward in repentance and in faith. It's very hard to do that because they've got a kind of internal judgment seat where there's no, uh, there's no forgiveness. You know, if, if, if your ultimate judge is your own heart, uh, then you're either going to have a kind of indulgent, do whatever you want to sort of voice, or you're going to have a, you're never going to be able to get this right voice. And neither of those two things are true. That's really good. Um, in the book, you talk a lot about, or at the end, you talk about uncertainty about the future, kind mm -hmm. of like Saul and the witch at Endor in 1 Samuel 28. And so you talked a little bit about this when you're talking about judgment, but the fact that we're in Christ, how do we see that the worst has already happened to us and that the best case scenario already exists? Can you explain that a little bit? 
Well, you know, there's, um, they're, they're all the way back to the Stoics and I don't, um, you know, I don't, obviously I don't agree with the Stoics on a lot of things, but uh, one of the things I think they were right about is to say, if you're, if you're wanting to uh, get your, your mind in the right place about whatever the, that it is that you're afraid of, there are going to be some people are going to tell you, be positive. Uh, only think of the, the best case scenario. And sometimes that's almost a kind of witchcraft. If you, if you think it to be good, it will be good. Or if you speak it to be good, it will be. Um, but that actually doesn't work. Uh, instead, what the, the Stoics used to say, and sort of wise people since then, is actually uh, if you have the worst case scenario in mind, that actually is what helps people to be resilient. Because uh, if you say to yourself, okay, this is what I'm scared of. This is what I'm worried about. What's the worst thing that can happen? And then can I survive that? That's what actually helps people to, to move through things. So for a Christian, I think the same thing is true, except that all of the ultimately worst things that can happen to you have happened if you're in Christ, because his life is your life. So that means uh, you're afraid of death, you're already dead. You're afraid of judgment, you've already been judged. Uh, you're afraid of hell, you've already been to hell in, in Christ at the cross. I mean, all of those things have already happened to you. And so uh, it's not something that's hanging out in the future. You're actually a survivor of all of that because you're, you're united to Christ and you're hidden in Christ. And so that means that you actually can, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be pleasant for you, but it does mean that you, um, it, it does mean that you have a sense of, uh, sometimes people live a life where they think everything's about to fall out from under my feet. And that's just really not true for you. If you're in Christ, you have a father who actually is, is leading you through wherever it is that you're going uh, and, and isn't going to leave you. And that's actually how you conquer fear. So that's awesome. So we have a lot of listeners who are like college student, young adult age. And yeah. so obviously in that stage of life, there's a lot of uncertainty about jobs and career and marriage and stuff. So yeah. what would you say to people who are very uncertain and might even like idolize having a certain knowledge of, of what's ahead? Do, do people need to embrace the uncertainty or kind of walk away and find certainty somewhere else? Well, I don't think you're going to be able to find certainty uh, anywhere else about that. Uh, you, you can find certainty in terms of, um, in terms of what matters, but you can't find certainty in terms of what your life is going to look like. And so sometimes people will say, will ask me if you could, uh, go back and say something to yourself in college, you know, or in high school, or whatever, what would you say? And my first answer is I would say, stop worrying about so much and playing out all these scenarios uh, about various things about my life because it's a waste of time that most of the things that I worried about when I was a college student never happened. And uh, the, those that did uh, were manageable by the time that I, I got to them. 
it doesn't mean they're pleasant, but I, I, we, I could survive by God's grace. And so to stop the worrying. But the second thing I would say is I don't really, I wouldn't really want to go back and to give advice to my 20 year old self because even the things that seemed, uh, that seemed bad, that seemed to be detours and cul-de-sacs in terms of where I was going, that, that actually God was at work in all of that. And, and I wouldn't want to get rid of um, any of that in terms of what God's doing. So you're just not going to be able to map out your life. And so handing that over uh, to God and saying to yourself, the things that you're wanting to map out eventually you're going to see aren't the things that matter. And that, you know, people, we tend to, we tend to call this sort of a, sometimes people call it a midlife crisis or whatever, but you see it so many times where you have guys who, because your twenties um, and your, your thirties are those times where it seems like everything's limitless for you. So even, you know, even if you're, you know, you're 22 and you're not very successful at all, you can always think to yourself, yeah, but I'm going to be, okay? And you, you can sort of reassure yourself with, yeah, I'm going to be. Problem is, eventually, you're 32 and you're still not successful the way you define success, or you're 42 and you're still not successful the way you define success, or you're 52, and, and, and by that time you realize, okay, I'm not going to be. And so people kind of spin out of control. When in reality, if you had spent those times in your 20s uh, sort of giving yourself over to saying, hey, maybe success isn't what I think it is. And, you know, there are all sorts of things that maybe uh, God has gifted me to do, and I may have uh, great success doing those things, but that's not who I am. You're just going to be in a better situation, ultimately, to face the future and not to fall apart. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and, you know, really quickly before we wrap up on our Monday episodes on our podcast, uh, we've been going through the book of Mark. Mm -hmm. Do you have like any pointers on what should we be looking for in terms of uh, how we see courage and integrity um, in Jesus? Well, I mean, one of the things that's remarkable to me is the way that Jesus is never panicking when everybody else is around him panicking. I mean, you think of that with Mark. I mean, you think of that with Mark with the um, uh, on the, the Lake of Galilee with the storm uh, that comes up. He's, he's, everyone else is just in absolute panic. Jesus is asleep. He's not, he's not doing that. And yet the moments where everybody else is calm are those moments when Jesus is in anguish. Uh, Garden of Gethsemane, uh, for instance, the disciples are asleep. Why? Because Jesus actually knows what's going on and, and actually sees what's going on. And he's going to that place for us. And so I think just seeing that and, and asking as you read through Mark, um, God, how can, how can the life of Jesus by the Spirit manifest itself in my life where I have this sort of growing tranquility uh, in the face of all of these minor, you know, compared to God, minor uh, obstacles? Uh, I think that's an important thing. And there's also, there's a, um, a really good new book by a friend of mine, Michael Card, called The Nazarene, about the life of Jesus. 
And he talks about, uh, and I think he's exactly right, how the ending of Mark, uh, the, the, the ending, the original ending, not what was added uh, later on, is brilliant because it ends with the empty tomb and the women are afraid. Uh, and, and sometimes people would panic when they would get to that and say, well, we've got, a, we've got an ad, an actual ending. But what Card is saying is that Mark is actually intending for you to experience what the disciples are experiencing there, uh, that they don't know what the future is for them, because that's going to be filled in later on. I think that's, that's um, I, I sort of went back and reread the ending of Mark with a, with a different eye after that. That's awesome. I've, I've never thought about that. And just to wrap up, we've asked every single guest this this season. Um, but do you have we're, we're big coffee drinkers? Do you have uh -huh. a bit? Do you have a favorite coffee drink or favorite tea drink that you often turn to? You know, I drink um, all sorts of different uh, uh, coffee, but I drink typically just sort of black coffee um, in, in the morning of, of all sorts. And then um, and then I'll, I drink a lot of green tea later on in the day, but the problem is I drink too much of all of it. <laughs> I think we could probably say the same. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much uh, for joining us. We had a great time talking to you and uh, The Courage to Stand is an amazing book uh, and I'd recommend it to anyone, but thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. Blessings to you. You too, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.